This is your home for St. Cloud State Hockey, keeping you up to date on the NCHC. One-timer coming, they score! Ripped in! A bomb from Perrix! Women's WCHA. Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies. The National Hockey League. Kaprizov in for a chance to win it! He scores! And everything from the state of hockey. St. Cloud Cathedral is now 42.6 seconds away from wrapping up the school's first ever title. Welcome to the Huskies Warming House Podcast Den. Welcome back to the Den Husky Warming House Podcast fans. It is episode number 60. I'm your host, Nick Maxim. My co-host is Noah Grant. In this week's episode, we take a look at the playoff picture that is starting to take shape in the National Hockey League. We'll also get, finally, some confirmation out of the seniors that are returning back to the St. Cloud State men's hockey team. A couple of other topics. Does fighting have a place in the game of hockey today and then our and our extra ice session. We also talk about the NHL's Department of Player Safety. We are recording here on Saturday because tomorrow was Mother's Day. Uh, Noah, it, being that it is Saturday, we normally are doing this Sunday morning. First of all, welcome to the show and how you been, dude? It's been good. I've uh, been hanging out and uh, I don't know, excited for Mother's Day, which of course will be today slash tomorrow, if you will, when this of course airs, but uh, I've been good. I uh, finally secured uh, some changes into my job, a couple of different changes. I thought I was gonna be working at a hotel more often. Turns out I got offered uh, the assistant director of marketing position for uh, a corporation here down in Minot. They offered me a gig based on my work for the ACHA tournament a couple of weeks ago. So that's kind of cool. Uh, excited with the crew that's there and I, uh, Cannot wait for summer. How about you? Um, just finished up my last final this Thursday. Um, so now it's uh, summer kicking into high gear here. In about a week, I will be taking at least one summer class. Uh, in, in a year from now, Noel, you know, as strange as this is, as old as I am, I will finally be graduating with a bachelor's degree from St. Cloud State. So that uh, we'll see. We'll see, right? There's still time to, <laughs> to not make that happen. But with that being said, Noel, our first segment is the Huskies Illustrated. Weekly round. Center Ice View news and notes. Center Ice View provides you with the best coverage of St. Cloud State Huskies hockey from game notes, recaps, photos, and more. Go to centericeview.com. Starting with our first topic here, Noah, uh, the National Hockey League, as we mentioned before, uh, a couple more teams punching the ticket to the postseason. Uh, also, some scenarios could play out tonight that might lock in the final two playoff spots in the National Hockey League. Vegas, Colorado, Minnesota, and St. Louis, all representing the Honda West Division, has all punched their tickets, while Pittsburgh, the Washington, Boston, and the Islanders are the top four in the Mass Mutual East. And the Discover Central, it's Carolina, Tampa Bay, Florida. And while the Nova Scotia North has Toronto, Edmonton, and Winnipeg locked in, so a couple of spots still open. But let's go back to the Central. Nashville only needs to win one of its final two contests to clinch a playoff spot in a, um, in a fight with Dallas, I should say. 
the Stars do have an opportunity, however, to make the postseason. They would need to win their final two, but also they would also need Nashville to lose their final two games as well uh, to get a playoff berth. Now, the only other team that has a likely playoff berth, Noah, is Montreal, who can clinch as early as tonight with a single point against the Maple Leafs and a Vancouver Canucks loss in regulation. Now, if the Canucks cannot make the playoffs, of course, uh, they will be look, uh, looking to an offseason that will probably be uh, doing some many changes. One will be their minor league in a relocation. The AHL affiliate of the team will move closer to Vancouver right now. Uh, it will looks like it's heading to Abbotsford, British Columbia. The term is, uh, excuse me, the team is currently uh, spent the past couple of years in Utica, New York. Vancouver's new affiliate name, logo, and brand is still not yet known once the move does take place. But sticking in the AHL, um, a franchise owned by the New Jersey Devils will also move uh, from Binghamton, New York to Utica, bringing uh, next season as well. So the Utica Comets announced a 10-year deal affiliation with the Devils with that move. And the organization will keep the same name, same logo, but will reveal New Jersey designs and colors later on uh, before the start of next season. Sticking around the state of New York, Nick, in the Big Apple, the New York Rangers, they've had an interesting week, to say the least. Team owner James Dolan fired general manager Jeff Gorton and president John Davidson last Wednesday, promoting former NHLer and assistant general manager Chris Drury to both of those roles. The Rangers were embroiled in a $250,000 fine from the National Hockey League after they released a statement calling for former NHLer and current Department of Player Safety lead George Peros to be removed as the head of the department. Peros has come under fire after Washington forward Tom Wilson injured Rangers star Artemi Panarin in a prior contest last Monday. The Rangers believe that Wilson, who is a repeat offender, should have been suspended for his actions on the ice, and instead he only received a $5,000 fine. The firings were not related to that incident, and uh, the owner stated that the group has needed a culture change after the first 20 games of the season. In Jury's first game in his new role, the Rangers retaliated on Wilson and the Capitals on Wednesday with a line brawl in the opening moments of that game, plus a fight that injured Wilson in the contest. It was Washington, however, that would have the last laugh as former world warrior TJ Oshie netted a hat trick in the win. Oshie has recently been dealing with the passing of his father, Tim, who passed away at the age of 56. A recognizable father figure and coach, Tim had been battling Alzheimer's since 2012, but was able to watch TJ win a Stanley Cup back in 2018 with Washington. The hat trick performance was TJ's first game back since his father's passing. All of our thoughts and prayers go out to TJ and Coach Ochi for his passing. So some sad news again from a Minnesota native, but uh, some other milestones in the NHL were held this week. First, Vegas netminder Marc-Andre Fleury uh, did pass Roberto Luongo for third on the all-time wins list, collecting his 490th career victory against Minnesota earlier this week. Fleury, who is 36 years of age, does sit 61 wins behind Hall of Famer puck stopper Patrick Waugh for second on that list at 551. Marty Brodeur, however, leads their group with 691 career victories as an NHL starting goaltender. Sticking out West Kings forward Andre Kopitar nabbed his 1,000th career point with an assist against the game in Arizona. Kopitar is the fourth king in franchise history to hit the milestone and the first Slovenian to do it as well. Another NHL News Toronto has signed for a Kirill Seminoff to a one-year deal starting next season. The 26-year-old had 26 points in 60 games this year in the Continental Hockey League, where he has been since 2013. He also added nine playoff points en route to winning their Gargarin Cup, the KHL's version of the Stanley Cup, Noah. 
In our second to last topic, Nick, the Buffalo Sabres have had a rare bright spot this past week. Goaltender Michael Hauser added his second win in as many games this past week for the club against the New York Islanders. While the goaltender wins are pretty common in the NHL, even in Buffalo at times this season, Hauser's first two victories of his NHL career are unique. Facing 48 shots in his first contest and 36 in his second, Hauser, he's currently 28 years old. Before his NHL debut, following a year away from in-game competition, he hasn't played above the ECHL level since making a nine-minute AHL appearance in 2017-18. For those who don't know, it's the NHL, the AHL, and then the ECHL in terms of league order. The Ohio-born netminer spent the majority of the last four seasons in the ECHL, and eight years he's toiled in the minor leagues before being called up due to injuries to five Buffalo Sabres goaltenders. He currently finished his fourth contest today against Pittsburgh with play-by-play voice Rick Ginnerette on the call for the Buffalo season finale. Ginnerette, who turned 79 in July, is celebrating his 50th year on the air with the club. He called the year unfortunately disappointing for the Sabres, who currently finished in last place, having not made the playoffs in 10 seasons. Rick Ginnerette, yes, the uh, improbable Hall of Fame voice of the Buffalo Sabres. I think my favorite call, Noah, of his is Mayday. Mayday. (laughs) I don't think anybody who uh, has been around the game of high has not heard that call. But to wrap things up here, Noah, in this week's uh, roundup, the five injuries, although I've come in the National Hockey League. Now, Artemi Panarin had his season end against that same scrum that we will talk a little bit more about later with Tom Wilson. Uh, Again, he was in that game against the Rangers. Uh, Ottawa defenseman Thomas Shabbat is also done for the year. But a little bit closer to home, Former St. Cloud State forward Ryan Paling underwent surgery uh, for a looks like a wrist injury. He was actually leading the Laval Rockets with uh, 25 points in 28 games this year in the AHL before he came down with that injury. However, going up to the big club in Montreal, but still without goaltender Carey Price, and is also now missing for Philip Deneau, who is now sidelined with a concussion. Lastly, the Washington Capitals will be without star forward Alex Ovechkin, who is again out with a nagging lower body injury. And after uh, essentially only playing one shift in his return against the Rangers just a few nights ago. into the Husky Warmerdale's podcast again in episode number 60. Myself, Nick Max, and my co-host, Noah Grant. Uh, Noah, a couple of housekeeping procedures. Trivia took place earlier this afternoon, which if you on the listeners uh, about what the question was, the answer, maybe who won uh, week two of uh, season two here of the trivia session here for the Huskies Warmerdale's podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, uh, Caleb Peabody, who we had on the show this past week, was the first winner of season two of Trivia last week. So joining him on the leaderboard this week was Fight the Pants. Uh, Of course, Trivia every Saturday at noon. I should clarify because I think some people maybe are still confused about this. The first correct answer to answer that trivia question is our winner. So even if you get the answer correct, you got to be the first one to answer it correct in order to have the win. We've had a couple of people that uh, had some close calls here, almost getting their first win on the leaderboard. But Fight the Pants, a previous winner, but his first First win of season number two, like you mentioned. The question did read, this past season, St. Cloud State men's hockey senior forward Kevin Fitzgerald had 18 points on the year, including being the visiting team during the games in the NCHC pod. How many of those points were scored on the road? Nick, did you happen to see this question? Do you know what the answer to this is? I didn't see the question, but uh, I know we had a ton of road success this year. I'm going to guess 19 points. Well, you only had 18 on the year, so tell me how that one works. I thought you said 28. Uh-uh. That's his okay. number. <laughs> so let me go back to that. Let's let's go 12. How about that? 
You're very, very close. 13 is the answer. Fight the Pants was our winner. 13 of Kevin's 18 total points did come on the road this year. His first nine points of the year came out when playing as the visiting team. His first home point did not come until, get this, February 5th against Western Michigan. So kind of a kind of an interesting little transition there, uh, Nick. Uh, as we look forward to uh, a men's hockey player that is now officially, as far as we know, returning, and another men's hockey player who's been so great to this organization that is uh, moving on to a different stepping stone in his collegiate path. Uh, that's right. So let's first talk about the players that have uh, confirmed their uh, their return, and then we'll talk about the one that uh, will uh, unfortunately not be returning. So uh, again, uh, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks prior. Again, Brett Larson had also kind of gave us some hints was that uh, Kevin Fitzgerald, Seamus Donahue, Easton Brodzinski, uh, Luke Jaycox, and uh, I'm missing one person, and I can't believe I'm missing this. Um, who am I missing? Is, am I, is it really that obvious, Noah? Well, I mean, while you think about it here, for some reason, I don't know why can't we, we can't think of it either. I would say there's uh, one more senior that has made his addition to that lineup that maybe you want to talk about. Uh, well, uh, yes, exactly. That is uh, David Rennick uh, was the last piece of the puzzle, at least from what we were hearing. It was also uh, a couple of weeks ago when Brett, we had Brett Larson on that gave us an indication that he was confident that the goaltender would uh, have an opportunity to return to St. Cloud. I know that at least for me personally, uh, Noah, I know that as an NHL draft pick, we know of David Rennick. He looked really, really, really good down the stretch for this Husky squad. And so you kind of, you know, we had the sense that we wouldn't have been surprised to see David possibly sign his pro deal with uh, with L.A., whether it was a pro deal or a minor league deal. And I think all of us would have been happy for him. But it sounds like now confirming now with St. Clair State Athletics that David Rennick is indeed back in between the pipes, at least for one more season here for the Cardinal Black, which is, I think, is good news for a team that it sounds like is very, very hungry uh, to get back to the national championship game and, and have a little bit of redemption tour, if you want to call it, uh, for, um, as you could say, how they performed in, in that championship game. Yeah, a lot of moving parts here, of course, with any potential signing. Uh, I think it's good news for a, a lot of people and a lot of groups, and I think you might touch on this later. I think it's good news for everybody, except maybe potentially the two goaltenders behind him. But nonetheless, uh, we'll get into that in just a second. If you're looking at, at for this Los Angeles Kings organization, you've got Jonathan Quick, who's moving towards the tail end of his contract. You've got Cal Peterson, Notre Dame product, who has looked really, really good, I think, in his first couple of years as a pro, uh, and potentially maybe could be the guy uh, as soon as Jonathan Quick's time is done. Um, and then that's where the Kings look and say, is David Rennick the next guy up in that organization? Is he the guy they feel can maybe take that next step? Uh, my answer, and if we're being honest, and you know, I think if David was sitting here, I'd say the same thing. I don't think David's ready for that jump yet. I don't think, I think if he made the jump, I think he'd be okay. I think that the Los Angeles Kings David Rennick, Brett Larson, Huskies fans, we all want to see the same thing. And that's David Rennick's form in the months of February, March, and April be that consistent baseline for him through an entire NCHC season. I think that's the next stepping stone. And I think David Rennick, one, recognizes the opportunity that this group has to get back to a frozen four again, but two, understands that imagine what this group can do, not only in regional play, but in the NCHC and in the NCAA, if he plays like he did in the final two and a half months of uh, the season for the Huskies. So I think it's a good move for everybody uh, involved where he can continue to kind of raise his stock with the Los Angeles Kings group, who is kind of biding their time with Jonathan Quick in their rebuild process. And maybe he, he opens the door a little bit wider for himself when he tries to make that next jump based on his play next season. 
I, I actually agree with you on that sentiment. And, you know, we talk about developmental timelines, right? You know, and I think as we look at the NHL, uh, goaltenders are, are, I actually say, stereotypically the, the lightest to develop and trying to get to their pro form. So uh, I agree. I think, you know, it certainly can't hurt you uh, if you're David Wright to take an extra year. Um, of course, you know, when you're playing, essentially, you know, from what we know, this is still his net to give away um, it, as long as he's playing consistently. And, and like you said, I think just his, play to be more consistent at the level he saw uh, the final 60 days of the season. Uh, I think, again, that's going to be probably his challenge is how do you pick up right where you left off after this past season? And that's going to be, I think, the challenge for a lot of these players coming back is, you know, how do we keep that baseline here? But then again, also, how do we bring up to the next level? So uh, it's, it's an exciting opportunity here for Huskies fans. And I think also for fans, as we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, while with the fans, but also Brett is getting the opportunity to hopefully as, you know, things move forward in the pandemic, we get a chance to get the fans back inside the Herbrooks National Hockey Center, be able to see these guys in person at a cheer them on, um, you know, inside the Herb. So I think it's all good. Uh, but in a different transition, you know, you can feel good for these situations here. No, too, and that is Trevor Zins. Uh, who had been with the organization for a couple of years, uh, didn't really see really any consistent night time. He did confirm he was transferring and he is transferring to St. Thomas, which I think is going to be good for him. I think he's going to compete immediately for ice time there. Um, they've already got a really good solid goaltender and former North Dakota product, Adam Shield. So no, I kind of want to get your initial reaction uh, to the transaction and to uh, uh, what it means for Trevor Sins and also for the Huskies uh, as they look at their roster depth uh, for next season. Yeah, well, it, in, in an odd way, and this is no offense to Trevor, it makes things a little bit easier for the coaching staff. It makes it easier for the guys who are in that locker room, knowing that that's one less player that they have to have on their radar. I think one of the things that I like about Trevor and from what we've heard of all the guys is, like you mentioned, he didn't have a whole lot of consistent playing time, but at the same time, he was a great locker room presence, a great teammate off the ice. And I think that bodes well when you have a player that one is a good character, you know, off the ice, in the locker room, in the classroom, whatever it may be. But then two, you've got a player that, again, has been with a great organization like St. Cloud and is chomping at the bit to get some ice time. He's going to get a real good kick at the can uh, with this St. Thomas group. And you, like we mentioned, you know, it's not, and this is no offense to these programs that a program that I might mention here, but like RPI, for example, he's not coming from a team that maybe didn't play last year, or maybe, you know, wasn't the strongest team in the NCAA. He was with a St. Cloud State team that was a runner up in the national championship game. So you want to talk about that transition and that development process that he's gone through with Brett Larson, Dave Shyak, Nick Oliver, that's going to prepare him to be under a coach like Rico Blase. And I imagine his game will improve leaps and bounds. Will he be in the lineup? I guess we don't know compared to the makeup of what it's going to be, but we wish him the best. And the other thing that I think I'd mentioned too, uh, Trevor's been great with us as far as like, he follows our podcast. He, you know, likes our things and that sort of thing. And I think that that, that just says something about the, the person that he is is understanding that his role uh, when he wasn't on the ice is to be that that glue guy in the locker room uh, and really excited for him. And honestly, I hope he takes it and runs with it and becomes a key impact player. And yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, even though the opportunity may maybe necessarily wasn't here with St. Cloud, we do want him to have an, a good clash, a uh, good, fresh, clean opportunity. My enunciation today, you know, is just horrendous so i do apologize for those you, who are listening you, you know you, you want you wanted to mention uh enunciation and making a point though maybe we want to go back uh to this piece though about david rennick though you had mentioned one thing uh about how uh david rennick coming back uh maybe affects two uh great goaltenders that unfortunately are vying for that ice time trip similar to what trevor was doing for the past couple of years 
Yeah, and I, I think it's a double-edged sword, right, Noah, because you know we had all three goaltenders on uh, last August, I believe, or last September here on the show. And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you can tell these all three guys support each other. They're there to be, um, you know, each, each other's, uh, you know, lift up presence that they all want each other to succeed. But at the end of it, you're still competing for one spot. And that's to be the one that's in between the pipes on game day. Right. So, you know, one of the, I don't know if you want to call it a downside, but one of the, if you're the coaching staff, one of the good problems to have is the depth that St. Louis has between the pipes. Now, if I'm Joey Lamaru, I'm Jackson Castro, and of course, I'm not speaking for them, but it, it is sort of a, a mixed message. You know, if I'm sitting there going, yeah, it's going to be great to have David back as a teammate and as certainly as a player. But if I'm Castro, if I'm Lamaru, that also means that now, you know, my opportunity maybe to secure a starting goaltending spot or maybe to get uh, more looks at the can just kind of in the same situation Trevor Zins was. Well, now you have to start to think, well, where is that there? Now, again, with college hockey, it's still no different than pro, right? If David uh, doesn't perform well, if, he, if there's an injury, we certainly, you know, obviously hope that's not the case, but, you know, you never know what an opportunity could come knocking. Uh, but I still got to think too, you know, for, for Jackson and for Lamru that, you know, I, th I don't think it would have surprised me if either one of them would have entered a transfer portal in that sense, mm -hmm. because I think they're both quality goaltenders. And I, I think there is always that competitive itch, even though, you know, St. Cloud is such a tight knit group, the culture, they are so great. But you still, at the end, you want to play hockey, right? Uh, so, Noah, I I'm kind of curious as to what you know, what your thoughts are in, in this sort of situation. If you're Joey Lamru, if you're Jackson Caster, yes, yeah, great to have David back. You know, he he's going to be really good between the pipes. But for your own personal growth and success, you know, now there's a question mark that maybe wasn't quite there just maybe a few weeks ago. Yeah, I think the challenge uh, is when you're thinking about things like the transfer portal. I don't, I don't think either of those guys are. But I mean, not to say that it hasn't crossed their mind. I would say probably say. If there was one program I could have seen either of them, either of them going to, it might have been actually Bemidji State. Similar because they lost their starting goaltender, right? Moving on to the University of North Dakota. You've got Adam Scheel, who's who moves on to uh, um, St. Thomas as well. And you maybe have that void where you could step in and maybe try to vie and be that guy out there as well. Again, the other thing to remember, too, is that essentially this year uh, for these goaltenders potentially is a reset, right? They still could have their um, normal eligibility uh, again, just because of the fact that everybody gets that extra year, they might, after after David Rennick is done this year, they might continue to try to vie for those spots and continue to grow in that area as well. So one, it's a great problem to have. Like you mentioned, it breeds competition. It breeds those opportunities. But with that being said, you've got three quality goaltenders and it's not, it's not a top pairing for defensemen. It's not a third line forward group. There's only one goaltender that plays on each given night, most nights. So I, uh, you, you feel for him a little bit. You feel for him because they're great goaltenders. You know, David Rennick is a fantastic goaltender too, but you feel for him because you know that uh, they have a lot to offer. And I think that it's, it's difficult in respect too, because people talk about, you know, Oh, who's the next guy up? Is it Jackson Castor? Is it Joey Lamro? Both those guys are equally good goaltenders and both those guys really have a lot to prove. And they just unfortunately haven't gotten that ice time. Uh, so yeah, it, they're probably the only two people that are, have mixed emotions about David coming back. I'm sure they love David. It sounds like everybody loves David. I don't know how you, how you can, but again, they're hockey players. They want to play hockey. So I, uh, I don't know, I guess we'll have to see how it plays out, but you hope that if anything, uh, they're going to be good teammates. They're going to be supportive. And if anything, they're going to push David in practice to be the goaltender he was in April. And then some, I agree. Um, you know, speaking of fighting, in a really, you know, nice little transition oh here, Noah. I know, right. <laughs> um, you know, we're not talking about fighting 
for a spot in the lineup, but we're also talking about fighting in its role, especially at the NHL level. Um, now, hockey, you know, if you're a casual fan, especially if we if we rewind the clocks back 40 years, I know you were just not even a twinkle in your mother's eye, but we'll get to that later. Um, but it was a large entertainment draw for the casual fan of the National Hockey League. Uh, I think as a, as a fan, not just a casual, but a very in-depth fan, I think the game has you know, obviously evolved to much more of a speed and skill game. And I think the game is very enjoyable to watch. And with this transition, you know, especially over the past 15 years or so, since the last season ending lockout from 04 to 05, what we've seen is, you know, essentially, you know, I call it the, the enforcers, the goons, uh, the guys who maybe could skate a shift or two a night, but go out there and try to protect it. That has essentially gone on the wayside, but it hasn't really taken the edge, the, the sort of that, you know, that, that fight back spirit that has been in the game uh, for a very long time. And with the incident that we'll get into a little bit more uh, in depth here with Tom Wilson, uh, our Timmy Pinner and Pavel Buchnevich. Um, the question now still remains is does fighting still have a place in the game of hockey? And uh, before I gave my thoughts, I'm kind of curious as to what your thoughts are uh, on this topic. Well, this is actually a segment that's inspired by Go Huskies Woo and actually our group chat with him and Caleb Peabody talking about uh, that game and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, shout out to you, Go Huskies Woo. We love you. Um, but I, I know him and I kind of maybe disagreed on this topic. Uh, yeah, I 110% fighting still has a place in the game of hockey. And I think if you asked a lot of players, they would say the same thing. Uh, one documentary I would encourage people to check out is the documentary Ice Guardians, I think makes a great, great couple of points about why fighting is the way that it is. Um, and a couple of, I, I'd like, I'd love to run into some counter arguments here. Would you like to do those counter arguments or would you like to, uh, um, would you like to kind of lay out the scene here of the incident from the past week first, either, or I'm, I'm uh, let's, let's start with the counterpoints. I think just okay. because I think you know, sure. it kind of would transition well to what I have to say about it. Sure. Well, I gotta say, I gotta make you look good, Nick. Come on now. Um, <laughs> but I, I, one of the first counterpoint of course, is that one, basically all of their major sports don't have fighting. Uh, that's one of the first things. And my argument to this is um, not that, not that the game shouldn't change, you know, things shouldn't always be archaic. Fighting has always been a part of the game of hockey. It's just been a thing that's been a part of the game. That doesn't mean it can't change. But I think, as you mentioned to your point about players becoming more speed and skill-based, that's been a natural progression. We've seen the percentage of fights per hockey game go down steadily in the national hockey league every year. The second point that you made as well too, is that there used to be these guys who maybe played only four minutes a night, that that's what they were there for is kind of to grind it out, maybe to set the tone and get ready to fight somebody. And that's why they were on the bench. So you might've had 12 forwards dressed, but maybe only 10 or 11 of them played that night. Now you roll four lines because you can't afford the roster spot, but that doesn't mean that you don't have guys that can still pick them up and throw them down. Tom Wilson, as much as we all hate Tom Wilson, really good hockey player, very good hockey player. When he's playing on the right side of that, that edge, he's a guy that, you know, a lot of people don't want to mess with because he can, he can throw the knuckles and he can also, you know, play a, a good 200 foot game. He's a good goal scorer as well. Um, and, and third, I think people just say that it detracts from the flow of the game. Um, I just, I disagree so much. I want to hear your points first to see how many of, how many of them that you can, you can set up, but as, as a former player and as someone who's played in leagues that fighting has happened, there are times where I, I got to be honest with you. I, players have a tendency to be able to police the game. We saw that 
with the New York Rangers situation. Obviously, you don't have line brawls every time you're policing the game. But I think there are moments where someone gets speared, they get slew-footed, they get hit from behind, the officials miss the call. Hey, you're going to have to answer the bell, and that's just going to be a part of it. And I think that no matter whether you're in an NHL game or you're at a pickup game on a Sunday night, there's a moment where if you cross the line that's big enough, you're going to have to answer the bell. And I think that that still has to be a piece of the game of hockey. So, uh, you know, to, first to just to, to kind of state my position on it, no, I think it's important to first set the, you know, when you talk about fighting and I suppose why it's there, right? Uh, so back in, in, and I think that's important to, for me to lay out because the reason we fight now versus even 40 years ago has also changed quite a bit. Um, 40 years ago, fighting was, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a, a sort of, you could call it a territorial marking kind of thing. I don't know how else to describe it, but it was, this is my house, you know, this is my ice. And, uh, you know, if you're going to win this game, you have to get through me physically, right? Philadelphia Flyers, mid-1970s, classic example there. Yes. So, um, and, it, you know, a lot of other franchises, uh, you can go back to the North Stars versus Boston Bruins uh, and uh, that very classic game. I mean, that's, it was, a, it was a show of strength is what it was back 40 years ago that and it, that's how the game was just played at that time right so now let's fast forward it to nowadays the reason why we fight now is like you mentioned you have Kirill Kaprizov who gets hit from behind with a cross check and he is your star rookie he's a guy that he's a skilled player you know that the team is better when he's on the ice and if someone takes a run at him physically um, you don't want you. You essentially are like you mentioned. You're policing the game as a player to say, if you're going to go after my star young player, now get to come for me. It's like the best friend, who's the bigger guy in middle school, who's you know five foot ten, and you're trying to protect on the you know the playground the guy that's five foot one, you know who just happened to get in a little scuffle. It's that it's that brotherhood mentality. It's really what it is, right? So, the, so the question I think is arbitrary, and here's why. The fighting has a place in the game because you always are going to stick up for your teammates. But I think we also need to understand, too, that fighting itself has evolved, too. Let's even look at the rules the NHL has implemented. You can't even take off your own helmet when you are fighting now. Uh, the linesmen and the referees, they're not just sitting back and letting you just throw haymakers. When they see an opportunity to cancel a fight, they're going in and doing so. And so the league is starting to take sort of more of a structural approach to try to reduce the fights, try to reduce the length, the possibility of injury. Um, so I think the league has done as much as it can to try to, you know, sort of control the emotions that lead to fighting in today's NHL. Um, but at the end of it, again, if, if my guy is hit from behind, it's obviously like, you know, from my perspective as a player, if you're on the rights and you feel like that was a run and intent to injure because the other team is down five to one. It's the last game of the regular season. Whoever wins the game has a chance to go into the playoffs. And now it's just frustration that's coming out. Do you really, as a player, and this is the part of, I think the mentality that people miss is as a player, if you do nothing, what's the most that happens? The referee blows it dead. The guy skates off unharmed. He maybe gets ejected or even at worst case scenario, he gets a two minute, you know, roughing call in the box. The players look at that and they don't see that as justice, right? They look at that and see, no, we know that's all that's going to happen. So 
for me to prevent that from happening again, I got to go retaliate for that action. And so, and that lays into what we will talk about with Wilson and Butchnevich slash Panarin. But for me, that's to answer the question, a very long winded answer. I apologize for listeners, but fighting will have a place in the game because of that. Now we can have the argument, whether you think that's a good idea, you think it's silly, uh, but just know that when you got 20 guys in the locker room who all, you know, fight together day in and day out, and in most times an A2 regular game season, you're blocking shots, you're laying the body on, everything is about sacrificing yourself for the betterment of the team, which means one of you guys goes down and it's the other team that's making that happen, you stick up for your teammate. That's the hockey team mentality. It's something that's sort of bred in you as you kind of grow in the game, Noah. And that's, I don't think that's ever going to be taken out. Now, again, I think there'll be continual reductions with rules and different things that will reduce the occurrences of fighting. Will they ever eliminate it? I don't think so. And I think, I don't think the game will actually they, allow it. I don't they, think so. And they shouldn't. And the, the reason being, when you talk about fighting has, has changed, the purpose of fighting is not it's not to punch somebody's face. And I think in the seventies, it was, I think there were times where you it just, was, you, you, right. try, you tried to kill somebody. And that was, you know, you got a bunch of farm boys from Saskatchewan and that was the way they made their living was they were tough enough to chuck knuckles. And that's what their job was. I think the unwritten line has changed what fighting does nowadays. Um, and and it, it did it back then too, but I think that it's, it's evolved into maybe more its main purpose. Now fighting sets the precedent that there is, this unwritten rule or this unwritten line that if you cross over that line, you will have to be accountable for your actions. And in some ways it actually protects the players by being kind of like a preemptive anticipatory protective measure in a sense. So if you're playing the Washington capitals, right. And let's say Tom Wilson for a change, isn't the aggressor here. Let's say, you know, they're playing the New York Rangers and Butch Navis comes up and hit somebody, somebody from behind. Tom Wilson goes and fights Buchnevich, right? They get into a scrap, whatever. Buchnevich has crossed the line. Now, when the Dallas Stars come to town and play the Washington Capitals the next night, and uh, Sagan is going in the corner with Zidane Chara, and he sees Chara's numbers, he knows that if I bury him from behind in the numbers, I got to answer to Tom Wilson and it keeps him from doing those sorts of things. And it becomes a preemptive piece of that. So fighting player players don't fight to fight anymore. You know, like they don't just do that to do that. And I don't think you meet a lot of players in general who want to drop the gloves. Like that is not their, like, I think it honestly makes a lot of people, a lot of players in some ways, almost like upset or like, it's just part of the job. It's like, it's like when I'm in nursing school and I see somebody with a giant wound on their back that smells really bad. I don't want to clean it, but it's part of the job. Fighting is a part of the job that you now have to do because you've seen this action happen that has crossed over that line. So I, right. you know, and, and, and I think that that's where people have to make that distinction is that there's not guys out there that are goons anymore, if you will, that are there specifically to fight. They see something that happens understand that they maybe can stand up for a player that maybe can't stand up for themselves or maybe is hurt or down in the play. That's where I think it needs to be there because like you mentioned, one, it's always been there, but two, it's just a piece of players being accountable because at the end of the day, the officials, do they make the calls? The department of player safety, are they supposed to suspend people? Yes. But in that moment, the temperature and momentum of the game changes based on the reaction of both teams as a result of that play. 
and you as a team don't want to back down and allow the other team to run over your star players or your best players. And I agree with you 100%. Um, I'm going to ask you just one counter argument before we get into our extra ice session here real quick. Sure. Um, and I think the counter argument is, well, wait a second. Andrew Shaw, who retired from the NHL here at the very young age of 29, I believe, if I recall correctly, yeah. um, he's retiring because of concussion issues. And a lot of that stems from fighting. So the you know a big part of the discussion is, are we losing some players because of fighting? And, and number two, I mean, you know, for those who, who look at that side of fighting, who see the consequences and, you know, that's true. Uh, there are consequences physically to having that many fights. I, I don't think we're anybody in this room between you, uh, myself and you are going to deny that. This huge but, room that we're in here. <laughs> right. But but at the same time, right, um, for those who are who look at his specific scenario, um, and it's not just him. Let's 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 be honest. It's not just him who succumbed to, uh, I could say, concussion problems, and you know has something to do with fighting. Um, this is you know it's it's situations like that where I would say that you know the fans, whether you're casual, look at that and go, well, this is the negative side of fighting. And I think the question comes comes to be, no, is you know, can we expect more situations like Andrew Shaw, where maybe his career is cut short because of fighting, or you know, are we, you know, as we discussed here the last couple of moments, fighting really isn't what it used to be. It's not something where I think everybody, like you said, looks forward to doing it, but you will answer the bell when called. But uh, to me, Andrew Shaw played a game with an edge. Uh, to me, I think, I don't think he looked forward to it, but he wasn't afraid to stick up in times where he needed to not only for himself, but for his teammates. And I just don't, I, I want to get your opinion. So can you, the NHL, ever prevent a situation like Andrew Shaw where at the very young age of 29, someone I think who came to the league, had a lot of promising upside and all that in his offensive. He kind of fun is his jive with the role that he was in, kind of a grinder, kind of a, you know, a kind of a hitter. Um, can the NHL ever prevent that? And I, I have a guess as to what your answer might be. No. And Andrew Shaw's career didn't end because of fighting. And a lot of players' careers don't end because of fighting. I think the, the rare examples are maybe Colton Orr, right? Colton Orr falls against uh, um uh, I believe it was George Peros, if I'm not mistaken, right? And But Colton Orr's career didn't end because of fighting. Colton Orr's career ended because he got hit in the face, fell on the ice, and then wasn't able to get back into the lineup because he was replaced in the lineup. He, like, he didn't end because of concussions. Uh, concussions only account for a very, very small percentage. Fighting, I should say, accounts for a very small percentage of concussions. I, you can't – that's just not how physics works. I, you see more – you know, broken noses, broken hands, broken cheekbones, that sort of thing. Players generally don't get concussions from fighting. That just doesn't, that's just not how it is. Now to say it never happens, that would be wrong. People can get concussed from fighting similar to how you and I go to a bar and get in a street fight and get concussed as well. I, uh, I don't think the changes for fighting change the ways of how concussions work simply because fans who don't play the game don't understand that your brain doesn't get jarred when you get punched. It's kind of a weird thing to think about. Your brain gets jarred when you're going at full speed, 25 miles an hour, and you hit a freight train coming to the corner, or you lose an edge and you hit the back of your head on the boards because you can't catch yourself. That's where the majority of concussions come from is when you get hit, you know, center of mass and your extremities, you know, rock harder as a result of that. So I don't think the changes in fighting, you know, is it good for players to keep their helmets on? 
Yeah, absolutely. When they're fighting, that's smart, right? You know, do you need the stage fights where you have the big enforcer trying to pick somebody out who's 40 pounds lighter than them? Obviously not. Those are changes that you can implement. You're trying to get away from head contact, those sorts of things. But when it comes to fighting, concussions generally don't result out of a fight. And I don't think that any of those changes are going to change that. And it's so hard as a former player who's been around that to explain that perspective to people, because it's one of those things that you and I can sit here and talk about it all day. You don't realize how much fighting is a part of what you do and helps kind of keep the temperature down for things that are going on until you've lived it and you've been a part of it. And I know from the outside looking in, I understand your perspective perfectly. It doesn't make any freaking sense. It doesn't make sense that guys punch each other in the face when they have a disagreement in a sport. It doesn't make sense, but it's always been a part of our sport. And then when you jump on the ice, it does make sense. I, I, that's such a horrible way to explain it, but I don't know as we push and just hit the 40 minute mark here. I don't know how, I don't know how, how else to explain that, Nick. Do you have a better way of explaining that? Because I don't think the changes yeah. in fighting are going to, detract from concussions at all the guys who get concussions are those gritty fourth line guys like you mentioned but that's the way they play they're physical they're hard and heavy in the corners and the jarring of their body during those fast-paced moments is what leads to their concussions and maybe it's end capped by a concussion in a fight but i don't think it's the culmination of fighting that leads to guys exiting the league uh, the statistics would say you're correct. Um, Andrew Shaw, you know, he did, he was a victim of some pretty nasty body collisions. And then when you fight on top of that, which again, as we discussed was, was something he was never shy to answer the bell about when you've already got, you could say maybe not a fully healed concussion. And then you add on fight. I think that's uh, partly what, you know, got to Andrew Shaw, honestly, in my opinion. Uh, now you're correct. And I, I think the, you know, if you were going to pin it solely on fighting, that's really not the case. Uh, but to wrap up the segment here quickly, uh, I think that, you know, again, fighting, it's more of the threat of the fight than the fighting itself was what polices the players versus players on the ice, right? Yeah. Um, be, and then that's really what it is. Because, again, the rest can call a penalty. They can eject somebody. But it doesn't take away your player getting hurt. It doesn't take away that, you know, they felt that they had the right to skate in and crush somebody in the numbers into the boards which is a dangerous play could have resulted in not only a very serious injury, but, you know, potentially a career ending injury or at least a long-term one. Right. And, and, and let's mention that too, very, very quickly. How many NHL fights have you seen from clean hits? Think about that. You know what I mean? Some of them happen. Some of them where guys think that the hit isn't clean and maybe you look back and it is clean. Most majority of fights start from a disagreement between two players and they're just settling it themselves or two, something happened that was, not policed or not regulated within the rules of the game that they've crossed over that line. And the one thing I wanted to ask you, Nick, too, because I don't know if you ever actually said, do you feel that fighting uh, in today's NHL still has a place? So it, it has a place because not, not for the simple fact that it's allowed. I think it's important to make that distinction. Yeah. It's the, because it's the player's way to police themselves mm -hmm. when the call is missed or when the call isn't to the level that the players think it might rise to. And with that, I think that transitions perfect. Noah, as we, again, just past the 40 minute mark, that will end our regular session here for the Huskies Warmer Nose podcast. We're going to transition into the extra ice session. We're going to talk about the NHL's department of player safety here and sort of one, their current role. And number two, uh, with the most recent events surrounding Tom Wilson, 
does there have to be changes made? And I think that's a conversation that has to be had. Welcome into our extra ice segment here on the Huskies Warm and Else podcast. Nick Max and alongside my co-host, Noah Grant. Uh, today's topic is, uh, I think, a very interesting one here, Noah. And it stems back from an incident earlier this week that involved Tom Wilson, Pavel Buchnevich, and then uh, sort of carried on into Artemi Panarin, per se. So for those who missed it, uh, there was essentially a, um, a New York had an offensive chance, which Navish, you could maybe say, had you know a, maybe a late little stick jab into uh, the Rangers goaltender. Um, excuse me, goal Washington goaltender. There you are. He yep. wouldn't be doing his old goaltender. Can't <laughs> tell it's Saturday. Um, and then Tom Wilson, uh, he went in and was protecting his goaltender. That, to me, was okay. They both went to the ice. Mm-hmm. But then as Bruce Navish is prone, he's faced to the ice, Tom Wilson decides, I don't like the way that you went to my goaltender and decided to punch him while he's down face down, I should say on the ice and essentially took a cheap shot at him. Right. So it wasn't a light push. It wasn't, you know, a little jab, it was a full on punch. Right. So then what happens is our Timmy Panarin sees this. He comes over. He actually climbs on the back of Tom Wilson, uh, Tom Wilson, because I hate to say it, but he's, he's a strong man. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a big dude. Our Timmy Panarin is not, quite as big or as strong as Tom Wilson is. Uh, Artemi Panarin, for no disrespect, he got ragged all pretty good. Um, and Artemi Panarin, unfortunately, due to the scrum, uh, suffered what we now know as a career, uh, not a career, a season-ending injury. Uh, Buchnevich had then uh, essentially tried to retaliate during that sense. Well, what happened out of this was Tom Wilson was given a penalty on the ice. It was not a major penalty. And then on top of that, the Department of Player Safety only find him $5,000. Now, a couple of caveats to this, Noah. Tom Wilson is, from the fan's perspective, a repeat offender, meaning he's done stuff like this before. Under the terms of the collective bargaining agreement and it to the Department of Player Safety, he technically is not a repeat offender. And so there was this huge uproar about the lack of discipline, which then leads to two nights later, essentially a opening line brawl to start game two between these two clubs in the season. And uh, essentially, you know, everybody's wondering who's watching the game, whether you're a close fan or a casual fan, what happened here? And and more importantly, what happened? Was there a miss by the department of player safety? And if that's true, what needs to change? And no, I want to start with you. First of all, should have Tom Wilson been suspended Number one, uh, or I should say number two, if he was to be suspended, how long would you suspend him? Um, and we'll start with that, and then we'll kind of go through this step-by-step uh, step here. Sure. Well, I think it actually stems a little bit from the piece of our, our fighting conversation. One of the other unwritten rules of hockey is that uh, when a player is down on the ice, when they're when they're down in that moment where you can tell that they're, they've gone into a defensive mode, they're no longer up, they're no longer trying to fight back, you know, that sort of thing, you let them go. So that's that's the first piece of this is that when Buchnevich is down and Wilson's wrapped around him and he starts kind of punching him, that's just a definite no, no. I mean, that's one of those things where, um, uh, again, to, to talk about how fighting works, regardless of the outcome of that play or the fine, if you're Tom Wilson, you're going to get your ass kicked. Like you can't, you don't, you don't punch my teammate in the back of your head. Sorry, not sorry. The second thing is Panarin comes in. You got to understand that Panarin's job in this role is when he pushes Wilson to the boards, 
uh, a lot of times what you see happen in fights is that even if guys aren't fighting, they grab onto each other. One guy takes another guy and the goal is to kind of keep them away from the scrum or try to kind of keep each other in check so that if something is going on, you don't let a guy just kind of run in out of nowhere because you didn't have a, a handle on your guy. So it's funny, even during fights, it's still man on man coverage, if you will. Um, but then Panera comes in, he pins Wilson, you know, up against the wall. I, one Wilson, I don't think had the real right to pick him up and ragdoll him and smash his head to the ice. But two, if you're Artemi Panarin, you grabbed on to the guy who was kind of being a miscreant. You're kind of, you involved yourself in that play. Panarin didn't deserve to get his head smashed in the ice. We just said that, but you kind of engage with the bear if you, if you know what I mean. So, uh, and again, good on Panarin for stepping in, in that, in that opportunity. So I think the result sucks, but I think I'm almost more distressed by the Buchnevis piece of it than the Panarin piece, even though the Panarin piece looked worse. So for me, should Tom Wilson have been suspended? Oh, um, I, I think the easy answer is yes, but I don't think it should have been, this giant lengthy suspension that people are calling for. I, and I think they look at Tom Wilson and say, Oh, well, he's had all these fines. He's had all these things happen to him. Oh, you know, suspend this guy, 10 games, he's garbage, you know, that sort of thing, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know. People say the same things about Brad Marchand, but people don't call for Brad Marchand's hat head in the same way that they call for Tom Wilson's head, just because Tom plays with more of an edge. I would have maybe given him a game at maximum two. I don't think anything more than that because yeah, he punched a guy in the back of the head. He, he Todd, Todd Bertuzzi to him a little bit. He sucker punched him in the back of the head, but he gave him two shots and then he was kind of pulled off of Buchnevich there. So I don't know, two games maximum, I would say um, would be fair. I I'm curious to know your assessment on that because I thought it could have been a suspension play, but I didn't, I didn't look at it you know, the same way I looked at the Steve Downey incident, the Donald Bashir incident, where it made me sit back on my seat and say, holy shit, you know? Um, but I mean, it was something where I was like, you know what? He crossed the line. And at the end of the day, it was funny. We heard a bunch of fans say, this is why fighting is garbage in the game of hockey. Nobody stood up to Tom Wilson in that moment. Yeah, because in that moment, I guess they probably expected out of the result of that scrum for the Department of Player Safety to do their job. They didn't do their job. And that's where the retaliation happened. So, you know, fighting is also about a time and a place. It's not always just, we're going to chuck it with Tom Wilson. The next time he steps on the ice, you got to understand it was a four, four hockey game at that point. So again, it's a time and a place. So there's a lot of caveats that go into this, but uh, above all, yeah, I thought he, I thought he deserved a little bit more than he got, but not outrageous five or 10 game suspensions. So let's address this one by one. Right. Uh, so number one, I agree with you. I think one of the things that often gets missed um, in this specific situation is the, the key piece for me is the Buchnevich part. Um, again, it, it was a guy that was face down on the ice. Wilson is almost, you know, kind of in that wrestling where he's actually on top of him bear hugging and his head is facing him. And he punctures him in the back of the neck. That's a no, no. Right now, Buchnevich doesn't re doesn't get injured because of the punch. He does get up and actually tries to re-engage in Tom Wilson there. Um, so I don't, I don't like the cheap shot to me. That was the egregious play. And as you mentioned, if I'm our team Pinar, yeah, you're being a teammate and you're stepping up for somebody else. The problem is, as I mentioned before, you decided to dance with the much bigger human being and also a much stronger human being. I don't like the fact that our Timmy Panarin got injured, but he was almost like a third man in, in that sense, because not only was Panarin involved, there's some other Rangers players that came over to engage in Tom Wilson too. At that point, Wilson's just trying to defend himself. Right. Um, at one point, actually our Timmy Panarin is actually off the ice because he's actually 
on Tom Wilson's back um, for a little bit. So to me, yeah, I never want to see a player get injured, but when you step into the dance floor, uh, you have to know what you're you know, stepping into and what could happen. Um, so to me, I think he should have gotten at least one or two games. I don't think a fine is there, uh, but I think the conversation, Noah, and this is where the conversation really is surrounding Tom Wilson. That is, he has a history of these sort of things, right? And for the Department of Player Safety, mind you, safety is in their name, right? So I think what, and it's it's funny we laugh because I think everybody's a different idea what their role really is, right? Is their role reactionary or is their role preventative? I think some people have this idea that it should be a bit of both, right? Um, I think when the Department of Player Safety was created, it was certainly more reactionary, right? It is, you do something, you're going to get either suspension or a fine. And I think what has sort of culminated from themselves being around is we've seen some lengthy suspensions. It's been rare that we've seen it. Uh, hashtag uh, uh, Rafi Torres. Um, but at the end of it, those are very, very rare, right? And they're very egregious situations. And yeah, there's this, I think there's a, 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 a dichotomy that says, yeah, you did bad. But we also know that, you know, you're a professional athlete. We can't hold you out for so long. Again, when a player is suspended, they forfeit that game's worth of salary to the department, you know, to essentially the NHL Players Association Fund. Um, so they do lose money from that. Um, so I guess the next attack here, Noah, is does the Department of Players Safety need to change their MO? Which means right now you do something bad, you're being punished for es essentially the crime given. But I think what people are uproaring about is, you know, yeah, you suspend Wilson or give him $5,000 fine, but that's not preventing him from doing it again. Does the Department of Player Safety need to have more of a preventative, you know, kind of caveat to what they do? Or, you know, in these situations, you know, do you think that maybe, you know, I, I guess, how would you change the way that they suspend or whatnot based on what we see now? Well, I think that I think that they should have a role in both sides of that. Um, and it almost goes back to the reason why players fight, right, is to prevent the next occurrence like that from happening and set the standard, if you will. I think the Department of Player Safety has a similar uh, you know, opportunity to do that. Like you mentioned, they were kind of a, a group that was maybe a little bit more reactionary and maybe a little bit more after the fact, if you will. But again, you hope that the decisions for that set the precedent for future opportunities, similar to, uh, you know, if Marty Brodeur, for whatever reason, takes the puck and T-drags around five defensemen and turns every play into a six on five, and then they say, now goaltenders can't go across the red line, well, you've now prevented that change in the game based on that ruling and you move forward accordingly. I think that's where the Department of Player Safety has an opportunity to do that. The, the goal of that specific department, um, and this might be obvious to us, but for some people it might not be so obvious, their goal is actually to take the rule book as it is defined, look at the play that happens, look at it in context and define whether or not the parameters of the rule book were followed or not followed and where the breakdown is and explain that to people and say, this is how we arrived at this decision because the wording says this, this is how this situation relates to the wording. This is why it is or isn't you know, a fine or a suspension or, or, or what have you. I, I think that maybe having the Department of Player Safety and a little bit more of that piece of uh, when rule changes occur, not only being preventative as far as their decision-making, but also saying, hey, we've seen a rise in 
X types of plays, or we've seen this statistic, or we've seen these types of plays really occurring. What can we change within the rule book to change that? Secondly, after the rule book has been implemented for that season, what actions have you seen that you want to set a precedent for? I think the biggest problem people have with the Department of Player Safety is that suspensions that or plays that look similar do not carry the same weight based on who it is, based on the type of play. And I think that frustrates a lot of people where you can say, oh, well, this person slashed this person in the leg, he got five games, but this person slashed this person in the ankle, they got two games. What's the deal with that? I think that's where the breakdown is occurring. We've set the precedent throughout NHL history that you can't Donald Brashear somebody in the side of the head, right? You can't come flying in like Steve Downey and leave your feet and send somebody into the boards. You can't do those things. Those are going to be lengthy, lengthy suspensions. We've also set the precedent that if you are a repeat offender in terms of suspensions under the collective bargaining agreement, the more and more you do those things, a la Matt Cook, the more and more you're going to be fined more heavily for plays that other players might not be fined. They've set those two precedents, but where they have the breakdown, I think, is those guys that maybe are starting to become repeat offenders or maybe do something similar to a guy who's the same status as them. And the, the suspension or the punishment doesn't match up from crime to crime, if you will. So that's where I think the change needs to be made. My question to you is how do you make that change where you can have more parity in terms of the suspensions, because every case and every play in hockey is different. And that's the challenge, right? I think the challenge that the Department of Player Safety has is number one, uh, they are confined to the to the way the rule book and the CBA has essentially allowed them to, right? So speaking of which, this is the actual definition of a repeat offender status by the NHL. They are considered a repeat offender for 18 months following his most recent incident that resulted in a suspension. His status as a repeat offender in this category, and I want to highlight that in this category, and I'll get back to why that's important here in just a moment, is you to determine the amount of salary forfeited should he receive another suspension. Here is the next sentence, Noah, and I think this is important for all fans to know. I quote, it is important to note that even if a player is not defined as a repeat offender by the CBA, his past history may come into consideration when determining future supplemental discipline. So it's interesting because the NHL is saying right there, hey, if you do the same thing over and over again, we may suspend you longer. Let's actually take that framework and let's put that into Tom Wilson, right? Tom Wilson, his suspensions have been for checks and more importantly, illegal checks to the head. Um, this is not a check to the head. And so when, when you talk about different plays in hockey being unique, this is the challenge the player, uh, the Department of Player Safety has, and that is everything happens quick. Not everything circumstances or context the same way. Yes, maybe Tom Wilson boards a player. Not everything sets up the same way. Not everything happens the same way. But could you say a check to the head where you're targeting could be? Yes. I think where you have to start is the CBA, honestly. Um, I think a repeat offender status to me, they're using it in the context of the category, which means Tom Wilson is being suspended because he did a cheap shot, a punch after a whistle. They're not taking into consideration his past targets to the head or any other past discipline. I think there's some good in that because you don't want to wrap in an after the whistle punch, especially when it results in a non-injury to something that did cause an injury and that 
essentially was more preventative or could have taken a different angle, that kind of thing. So I think that is the wording that has to change. On the flip side of it, to the question I posed to you earlier, does the player, does the Department of Players have to, first of all, I think the, the number one question here before I leave the answer is, is the NHL safer now than it was before with the Department of Player Safety? I don't think so, honestly. I think it's the changes to the rule book that have changed that. Um, and so I think that's the other caveat to the D, uh, DOPS, and that is how do we more establish ourselves as not just we're going to give you the proper consequences after you violate a rule, but also how can we set a better precedent where maybe this is more of a deterrent, aka put the foot on the ground and say, we're not going to allow this from you specifically anymore. And if you do, we're looking at different stuff. And, and, and they did that. The most prime and recent example is head contact, head targeting. That's the one where they changed where you said, even if you clipped a guy, even if he didn't see, see you, even if it wasn't intentional, if it results in an injury, boom, you're gone. Yep. But that's more of a rule book change. That's not a department of player safety change. And I think that's where people are, are kind of on the edge. It's like, well, so what does this group actually do? Right. And I think that is a fair question right now. Um, I want to make a sub point here, Noah, real quick. And that is for those who think the firing of the Rangers president GM is not related to that, you're full of crap. 100% related. Absolutely. You think? I, I actually disagree with 100%. You, but... And here's why. Not a chance. So <laughs> I have, I have, and well, first of all, okay. Uh, first right. of all, I've covered, I've covered the league for 13 years. This is how this works. So when you are an NHL team, you are essentially an independent contractor working underneath the NHL badge, which means, and there's specifics to each franchise, you do not bad talk the league at all. Not 100%. Here's what happened. The Rangers, and here's the thing. I would love to know who actually sent out the tweet. I, I want to know if the president and GM were aware of it. Was it somebody that was involved in social media? I would like to know who framed it, who wrote it, and who approved it going out. Here's one thing. Anytime you badmouth a league, you are getting a major fine. Whose fine does that come out of? The owner's pocketbook. When the Rangers were essentially, what, 10 and 3 in the month of March, and then also, I forget the exact step, but they were 19 and 10 the last two months. And you're going to sit there and tell me there was a culture change needed for the New York Rangers after they were a team that, to me, had won some really good luck with the draft lottery, who were a team that was trending up, um, a team that, to me, I thought was playing good hockey in a very, very tough division. They had a winning record. They're at plus nine in the last two months of the season. You're not firing your president and GM two years into what the general standard is for GM is at least the three-year mark. The three-year mark is when you – kind of get a sense of where the team is going at that point. I think two years is still too early. Now, the Minnesota Wild filed, uh, fired uh, Paul Fenton because of internal issues, right? So unless there's something you know, really that audacious that's happening, you're not doing a general manager change because of culture, BS. And guess what happened? After they fired him, guess what happened? $250,000 fine. So 100% from my book, and I'll be on the record say this, that is related to Rangers ownership. Because I don't think the Rangers ownership were aware of the message that was being sent. And again, the NHL was going to bite your hand, fist, and mouth if you bad talk anybody in the league. 100% related in my book. Yeah, I'm trying to find the find the statement here. And that's where it just says statement from the New York, New York Rangers. I, 
I don't know though. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't, I guess I don't disagree with you. I just kind of look at that and, and look at the comments. And again, he might just be saving face, but I look at comments from their owner and he said that he wasn't happy from 20 games into the season. And I think that says something where you look at that and maybe say, maybe the plan was that Chris jury next year was going to be the guy anyway. And they said, Hey, we're not happy about this incident. We're going to pull the trigger. We're going to release these two guys. And it's going to be a, it's going to look more unceremonious, if you will, based on the events that transpired. And they're just pushing Chris jury into that role at that particular point. I, I, I don't know. Here's, here's the issue. The timing doesn't make sense. You have four games left four five or six at that point to me why wouldn't why would you make the change then it's six games you're not going to do anything different you're not going to experience any culture change in six games but, left that's, in the, but, but that's my point my point is saying maybe they were ready to release him at the end of the season and they're so why not wait and then they're using the incident to just kind of say oh i can justify this change a lot more during a rebuild by surrounding it from the incident but not saying it's from the incident so I'm like qualifying your statement. It was because of the incident, but not because of the incident. Does that make sense? Well, I get what like, you're saying, but the, the problem is the timing works just because they were going to maybe do it at the end of the season anyway. And this incident is the perfect cover up slash not cover up for what was already about to happen based on I the disagree. Play, play this year. The rain. Well, so the Rangers had had a slow start, hundred uh, percent. But this team was trending up. Uh, and again, you're in a very, very, very tough division in hockey, arguably one of the best, top-down uh, divisions in, in the NHL. I just don't understand how after two, you know, less than two years, honestly, less than two for some, for, for John Davidson, while you're taking a team that's trending up, you had a team that was 19 and 10 in the last 29 games. Um, Didn't the Chicago Blackhawks do the same thing a couple of years ago, though? This isn't the Chicago Blackhawks. I'm just going to throw that right back at you. This is, you're also not talking about a situation where there was, in my opinion, a social media lapse with a situation involving your star player that you're paying $11.5 million a year and you're upset about it. Again, that's just how these things work. Every team knows that the department of players say to the referee, they're not going to get things right. And there's a, there, if you notice coaches comments, when they talk about refereeing, they pretty much, they, they say very small things that they didn't like it, but they're not going to outright say, and this is the part that goofed the Rangers. They called out George Perros by name, and they also said he was unfit to be in his present position. They went that far with it. I think if they would have released something again, the, the, the issue that I want to know is who is who typed it up and who released it, and did the ownership and did the GM and the press actually know about this statement? I I, I I have a hard time believing that they didn't know about it, um, but I would have an inkling that the ownership for sure didn't know about it. I, I have a I I can tell you that, but. To my point is, if they would have said, you know, we're very disappointed in the player's decision, we feel like it should have been different, left, leave it at that. Or most so, how about this? You know the ownerships that every 32 now NHL franchises have Gary Bettman's cell phone number. You could have easily said, let's get on a conference call. George, uh, Gary Bettman, and the owners of the range go, what in the hell is this? I think there would have been an opportunity there for a conversation. That obviously didn't happen. It was obviously whoever released the statement was an emotional time. You're losing your best star forward. Again, I don't think they've disclosed his injury per se, um, at least to what it was or if it's long-term or short-term. Again, the Rangers are out of the playoffs. They're done after six games. But to me, what's, what's, what's so impressive about this and why this to me is all related is, again, you're plus nine in the win column. This team is trending up. You're in the toughest division in the hockey. You release a statement, then boom, they get fired. Boom, 
quarter of a million dollar fine, which again comes right out of the owner's pocketbooks. I don't care if you're worth $1.25 billion. If you're an owner, a quarter of a million still hurts, especially if you did nothing or someone below you that you're supposed to trust and run a franchise and know that you cannot badmouth the league. It doesn't matter how much you're worth. A quarter of a million is hard for anybody to swallow. So to me, that's why it's related. Yeah. Okay. But then my question is this, at the GM meetings next year, what do they tell the DOPS and say, okay, guys, this needs to change. We've had a problem with this slash being three games, this slash being five games. How do they set that precedent where, where they look at and say, you know what, when players do X, Y, and Z, they're going to get this. When players do this, the minimum is this. Here's the problem. It's not a conversation that can be had because again, the department of player safety is run and its framework is the CBA. That's what needs to change first. So again, you talk about the repeat offender status. This is all language that is under the CBA. So again, right now it's 18 months and they talk about specific categories. Um, I think when, I think starting next after the end of next year is when I believe negotiations for a new CBA are going to start. No question if this sort of thing continues to happen, this is going to be, I think, a very interesting uh, topic for both the owners and the players association and the league itself to have to really come down to. And that is, again, what, and I think the first question is, as we were discussing before, Noah, is what is the role of the Department of Player Safety? Has it evolved? Does it need to be more preventative with their discipline? Or do they just want to say, hey, you got a speeding ticket, pay a fine. We only want to focus in right. on the ramifications of stuff that's already done and not worry about what could happen in the future. But what, you know what about I mean? but but my question is this should the Department of Player Safety also say, hey, you got a speeding ticket that was between X mile per hour and X mile per hour? That means that the fine falls under this category based on X, Y, and Z. And I- you know, yeah. and that and that's where it's just like I think there's a problem where it's like if Matt Cook hacks somebody in the ankle at six games, but then if oh I don't know if Kuro Kaprizov does it, he gets a five hundred thousand dollar fine or something like that. I don't know. Here's the issue though, or five thousand maximum allowable under the CBA. Right. Here's yeah. the problem though, as you you and I both know, if Matt Cook hacks a guy that is facing the boards and not even engaged in the play, and he injures and breaks his ankle, right? That's one thing. If Kuro Kaprizov hacks somebody. They're facing each other and they both were hacking at each other. You decide to find 5,000. I don't think you can clearly identify each situation that comes to the department as you, I don't think you can put that into one conglomerate. I don't think that's possible to your point though. I do think there is an opportunity for the department of player safety to go. I think what they need to really rewrite is the repeat offender status and get rid of the categorical things because, and here's why I say that the department of player safety right now to me is handcuffed with the fact that, Tom Wilson punched a guy and honestly, he's really never done that in a way that caused the DOPS to be alerted per se. A lot of what his suspensions of mine have been is for illegal checks to the head. So they're going off of, okay, he hasn't done this specific thing before. So they're looking at it incident by incident. What I think needs to happen is if Tom Wilson is a guy that continually breaks rules, plural, I don't think it should matter if it's a check to the head or a roughing up punch after the whistle, if he's displaying behavior where he's continually breaking rules that is supposed to help keep players safe, that to me is where the wording needs to be reworked. Because then it's like, okay, hey man, instead of the conversation ending like this, right? So here's how the top, the conversation on Wilson happens. Okay, hey man, you punched somebody, you haven't really done that before, just gonna find you. Now it's like, hey Tom, uh, you punched somebody. Hey, 
just a couple months ago, you're chicken winging somebody and you did, you know, you know, it was intent to injury, put their elbow up. What's going on with you, man, because of your essentially disrespect to the rules, plural of the game, we're going to suspend you seven games because obviously you are creating an environment that could lead other players to get injured and not just look at it as to what specifically he did. I think that's where things really need to change for the national hockey league. If the fans slash the players are going to feel confident that they're doing their job, which is yes, reprimandation, but also preventative type stuff. And I think that's how you have to do it. Yeah. I, and I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what, where you say, you know, what, what is a repeat offender? What is the time period for a repeat offender? I mean, like if you have a guy, you know, and not that it should make a difference in terms of like injuries, but I mean, like for lack of a better term, when you play hockey, shit happens. I mean, that, that just, it does. So it's like, do you say, do you say once an offender, always an offender? Do you do a time frame? Cause it's like, if you do something when you're 22 and then you, you'd accidentally elbow someone in the face when you're 36, does that mean that you're now a repeat offender after 15 years? You know what I mean? Like, right. And that's probably why it's at 18 months right now. Um, so, and, and that's the other side of the coin, right? No, as that is, you know, how, much weight do we want to put on past happenings right and i think that's where i don't think there ever is going to be a very good answer for a lot of people uh, i think it's always going to be subjective no matter what way you look at it and again with you know tom wilson specifically he has a knack where it seems like at least once a season um he has gotten himself in a position where he does something that is above the rules that's causing an injury and that's blatantly something he does not have to do and I hate to do this, but Tom Wilson, if he, if he plays the right way, he's actually a hell of a hockey hockey player. player. Great hockey player. Yeah. He actually, you know, for a guy that is as physical as he is, he actually has got some pretty darn good skating ability. He's got good skill. He reads plays well. So it's, it's almost like a weird case study with Tom Wilson too, just on the mentality side. And that is if you can just get him to knock off some of this, you know, over the, over the top stuff, he's actually a pretty darn good hockey player. Same, same with Brad Marchand when he was licking people and then he stopped licking people and then, played well in the playoffs right like right and so and 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 again you know i I don't know what the exact fix is i don't know anybody knows that answer but i i do think it is gotten to the point now where we as we enter the next phase of negotiations for the new cba i don't think the league is going to be able to essentially push this one under the rug i think it's going to have to be addressed again what they need to change what they should change i've laid out some of my thoughts um i I don't know what they could adopt because again the league the players association and essentially the board governors, the owners all have to agree to put that language, whatever they come up with in the CBA. That means three different parties have to say, yep, this looks good. And uh, let's just say the NHL is a history uh, of not really liking to come together to terms on the CBA in years past. Isn't that right, Noah? Yeah. I thought it was funny. I I was on Twitter the other day and uh, I saw a Minnesota wild fan say that the Tom Wilson incident that just happened was worse than Kevin Fiala's hit from behind. I'm, um, on was it matt roy yeah, yeah. I, I had this i had the same reaction i was like that that hit by fiala even though it was unintentional was pretty bad, <laughs> but bad. so yeah. and and i think that's the other line that i think the on a separate note the other line that nhl to drop is there should there be a line with okay yeah kevin fiala's a thing yeah it was a check from behind but how can you subjectively or maybe more objectively say this was not an intentional play just maybe you know, luck of the draw or bad timing or whatever you want to call bad circumstances versus. Uh, and, and I, th- and I think that if you're the department of player safety, you have to have uh, as much people love them or hate them. People like George Peros, you have to have former NHLers in there who know what it's like to go in that situation and can recognize 
Like when I, when I watch a hockey game, right. When I watch a player make a turn or try to step through a cross check or that sort of thing, I almost can like, I don't know. And I know you can do it too. It's almost like a sixth sense where you and I feel that play. We see it and we feel ourselves in that environment one because we've probably been a part of something like it but two we just know what the motions feel like you have to have former players in there i know people want to turn it into more of a business like big wig type thing you have to have former players in those roles because they understand best what it feels like to be on both sides of that argument also more so with and we talk about the speed of the game but a lot of things happen quick right i think Mm -hmm. the biggest example i can give to wild fans is let's talk about matt martin versus keith ballard right uh matt martin goes essentially all the way east west of the ice keith ballard is trying to dump a puck in from center and keith ballard actually turns his back towards matt martin and puts his face directly towards the boards he ends up injured and guess what there's no penalty call and i remember the outcry of wild fans well that was a dirty play it's like well no keith ballard if he stays parallel shoulder to shoulder put himself yeah, in it's a position. big hit. he put himself yeah. in a vulnerable position too so you know I, I think another thing that the department of players said could work on is how you define an unintentional circumstance versus an intent to injure type situation i think that's also something they could add into what they could do um so that way if they feel like it's an intent to injure or uh, kind of a play and again it's all subjective right there's not going to be something you can write down that it's going to fall into everything but i think you do have to somehow take that into consideration too. I think it does now, uh, but I don't think it takes enough of that into play. Right. And so, uh, yeah, Keith Ballard, going back to that, he put himself in a very bad spot. Yeah. He gets injured, but it was his own damn fault, unfortunately. Um, and Keith Ballard is a really good hockey player, but if he just stays shoulder to shoulder, yeah, it, it takes a big hit, but he's not putting himself into what, honestly, what could have gotten him paralyzed, you know, face, you know, it's a, it's a big no, no in hockey. When that in peewees, Noah, you never face the boards or turn face towards the boards, especially when you're not on it. When you have that gap of three, four feet, you land in that head snaps back. That could be a, yeah. a life changing event there for the player. Well, the timing is important too, right? It, it's again, if, if Matt, if he turns five seconds before Matt Martin gets there and Matt Martin continues to follow through with that play, then it's like, have you hit a defenseless player at that point versus have you made yourself a defenseless player? So the timing is everything as far as like, we see players turn all the time. Have you turned and not given the attacking forward or player the ability to pull up in that situation and not finish the play that they've already initiated? Hockey happens fast. I mean, it's split second, bang, bang. And then when you're on top of that, if you're on for a shift for 30 seconds in period number three and you're kind of sucking wind a little bit, you're not thinking, I don't want to say you're not thinking clearly, but you're playing a sport at high speed when you're tired. I uh, There's a lot of factors that go into it then versus just the big black and white a casual hockey fan who's never played the game in their life and who's watching the super slow-mo replay on NBC sports going, well, look at that. Look at how we got hit that sort of thing. There's a lot of plays that happens in scrums and things like that, that are a little bit almost borderline, but they get sorted out because the officials separate them. You know, the guys separate or nothing happens. I, you know, sometimes it's just luck of the draw things that uh, become catalysts are sometimes not the events that you would expect them to be. They can be little things like Brad Marchand licking a guy in the face. Honestly, some dude licked me in the face when I was on the ice. I think it'd be kind of weird, but I probably wouldn't start a line brawl, but I know other people that they would absolutely lose their shit over something like that. So, I mean, again, it's all relative and I don't really know what the particular answer is, but Nick, I don't know. Do we have anything else to add on this or are we getting on out of here? What do you think? You have anything else? I have one more thing to add. Okay. That is, um, you know, for those who 
you know, for, for Tom Wilson's sake, right. Um, first of all, I think he's a good hockey player when he uses his skill set and his physicality in the right way. Um, there's no question. He makes an impact on the game. Um, he's strong. He's actually got a good shot. He's got good offensive instincts and I'm not trying to defend him by any means. What he did was horrible, but it's how do you, as a department player student, the question is how do you get more out of the player? We think Tom Wilson and should you see more of like that? And how do we try to take away some of the maybe not so good parts of his game? Because I, I think, honestly, if you take away, obviously, his bad doings, he's had a lot of them. Uh, he's a great hockey player. He really is. But how do we how do we set the consequences and maybe future penalties that would deter him from making more of those same mistakes? I think that's really what it comes down to, Noah. Uh, but at the end of it, that should, unless you have anything more to add, I, I, I want to make sure I cut you off. Yeah, well, I was just going to add that uh, we have an exciting lineup coming up this Tuesday. Uh, speaking of Kevin Fitzgerald and that trivia question, Kevin Fitzgerald and uh, now former St. Cloud State Husky senior uh, Tyler Anderson are going to be joining us uh, on Tuesday for the Healthy Scratch interview segment to tell us about their respective paths, why Kevin came back, and what the heck Tyler is up to in his next stage of his career. So that's all I had to add. And of course, it's coming up on Tuesday. Coming up on Tuesday. Uh, so with that being said, uh, then thank you for sticking around here for the extra ice session here in the Huskies Roman Else podcast. Again, stick around for us this upcoming Tuesday when now super senior, and I know I'm going to get proud for that, Kevin Fitzgerald joins us as well as now departing senior Tyler Anderson will be joining us on the show. Obviously a lot of great discussion points we'll get to on those guys. For Noah Grant, I'm Nick Maxim. We'll see you guys back here in the den here in a couple of days. Timer coming, they score! Ripped in! A bomb from Perrix! So Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies alongside. Dwayne Kaprizov in for a chance to win it! He scores! Kirill the thrill is for real! Welcome to the NHL! Cathedral is now 42.6 seconds away from wrapping up the school's first ever title.